The fiery, furious relationship between the medieval era's most famous power couple led to glory and terrible failure. Their empire was the greatest in the West since the time of Charlemagne. He was nine years younger than her, but she matched his energy. When they weren't making love and producing another of many children, they were plotting against each other or fighting like cat and dog. She took no prisoners, but he made her one for 15 years. The world, it seems, wasn't big enough for Henry II of England and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Blind history. We're approaching the end of um, the latest season, and we've had so many interesting emails from people and people requesting all kinds of things. And one thing that we thought we'd struggle with at the beginning of this is to find enough women of history. And, you know, Ant and I would sit there and we'd, we'd, we'd wring our hands and we'd call out to the sky and go, oh, if only we had more interesting people to talk about. But they actually, through the course of these seasons, you'll see have been plenty of powerful women. There is not one powerful woman who even comes close in the medieval era to this incredible woman, uh, the, the, the redoubtable, the powerful, the, the mighty Eleanor of Aquitaine. And obviously, we're featuring her and her husband, Henry II, in this episode. But actually, I think this came about, Ant, because you and I love the medieval period. We love the English royal family. We love the Plantagenets. But what we like especially about this is it's it's this love story intertwined into power and war and and medieval Europe and so much other stuff that's going on. Yeah, I absolutely love Henry and, and Eleanor. Queen Elizabeth, as you know very well, is on the, both sides, both marriages, there's connections. Yeah. So this lineage is very strong and powerful. And another thing that I really love about history is everything's interconnected in some way. If we look at Arola, the mad Viking, <laughs> yeah. uh, that massive Viking, William the Conqueror was his great-grandson. And Henry II, his great-grandfather was William the Conqueror. So that lineage is insane. And this era was where these kings and queens, they need to go out on their horses and go and yep. sort the enemy out themselves. It was, it was, yep. a, it was a chivalry. There was, uh, there was romance. There was conniving. Everything Jeez. that you can possibly think on, of happened in this period now. Yeah, and interestingly enough, both Henry II and Eleanor were related also. They were even more closely related than Eleanor and her first husband, the King of France, who she divorced on grounds of them being too closely related. So it's yeah. it's full of intrigue. But let's just talk about this remarkable woman, first of all, because I don't think Henry would have been nearly the success that he was. And he was a he was a force to be reckoned with throughout his life. But he wouldn't have been nearly the man that he turned out to be if he hadn't married this extraordinary woman. She was of southern French origin. Her her grandfather was William the Troubadour, um, the first king who used to compose songs and poems. He was this, this romantic figure, probably one of the most famous dukes of Aquitaine. And she inherited all of that, plus her own father's warrior spirit. And he, he raised her as a as a man, you know, not not that she was, you know, confused about her gender identity, but he he raised her in the arts of war, of of hunting, of horse riding, of how nations needed to be run. She was a properly well schooled, well educated young woman. Yeah, first in literature, philosophy, avid horse rider, and led a very active life. 
and she inherited her father's title and the extensive lands very young. I mean, it was, she was around 15 years old upon his death. And mm. also she had a brother. He also died. Yeah, he predeceased her. I think he died at like age four along with their mother. Yeah, so then she was the sole heir. And then- well, she was, she was the most desirable woman in Europe, without a doubt. She was um, what, what these days they would, they would call you know, like a really good match for anybody. And here was this woman with these, you mentioned vast lands. I mean, when Eleanor inherited Aquitaine, Poitou, Gascony, all of these provinces from her father upon his death, she actually owned more of territorial France than the king of France. That's how powerful yeah, that's and that's great. how rich she was. So naturally, you know, you have a young woman of that age running around France. Uh, she becomes a target for ransom, for kidnapping, and pretty much the first nobleman that can get to her and successfully wed her and have a child with her inherits this extremely large kingdom, which was a duchy at the time, and plenty of wealth with it. And along came King Louis. I think he was Louis the yeah. Sixth, but he became Louis the Seventh upon Correct. his father's death. Mm-hmm. He first of all set up when her dad died, sort of surrounded and protected her in inverted commas. And then in the end, uh, the marriage happened. So she was then effectively Queen of France when his father passed away. So she was already now a queen. Right. Now, her husband was called Louis Lejeune the Young. Um, but he was a very pious man and, and wasn't very interesting to her. You know, she was this fiery woman with, you know, passion and temper and a lust for power and this, this really sharp wit and intelligence. And this guy was a bit of a drip. I mean, he, he was not particularly skilled in the art of war. He was very much devoted to the church and that was not his fault. He was raised as the second son to go into the church. Unfortunately for him, his elder brother died and he was suddenly given the, the crown, and, and he was wholly unprepared for this. Um, you know, he, but he, he was, was besotted with Eleanor. Shame, yeah. I mean, shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, I, and definitely she was the one, the, the one forcing the annulment, you know, yeah. um, although it was the fact that she couldn't give him a male heir. Uh, we're not sure what went on behind the scenes, but they did have two daughters, I believe. Yeah. But effectively, you're 100% right. She, she was... You know, she, with her personality and the way she was, it, it was never going to work between the two of them. Well, apparently the, the Pope had to actually force them to sleep together on their return from um, a part of the Second Crusade. They stopped off in Rome. She was looking to annul the marriage because she'd had enough of him. He just didn't do anything for her anymore. Um, he blamed her for losing a very famous battle in the Holy Land on their way to Antioch. He also... There were rumors, there was gossip about her having an affair with her uncle Raymond in Antioch. Uh, Whether or not that's true, we'll never know. But what was interesting is that when they got to Rome, the Pope said he's going to bless them specially. He took them into a room where he'd prepared a big bed for them. He was basically saying, right, you two, get on with it. And Mm. they did. They did actually um, conceive a child. And she was born a little while later. But these two daughters are, are, are much more kind of mysterious because they fall out of history very quickly. And then it moves on, as did did Eleanor, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think that Eleanor got a bad rep. So first of all, maybe the fact that she was sleeping with certain people. There was talk of her sleeping with William Marshall. Um, mm-hmm. He was the, the famous knight. And also with, like you said, Raymond. She spent, spent a lot of time with Raymond. And then also uh, Geoffrey of Aquitaine, Henry's father. Henry II, who we'll speak about just now, 
Um, there was talk also about her having an affair of sorts with, with him. But, uh, you, know, you know, as like a lot of the people that we've spoken about, it's all, it's, it's very much down to who's written the story. And there's always some hidden agenda going on. And there's very little proof that any of these things did, in fact, happen. Well, you know, it's also typical of men at the time that whenever a woman was powerful or influential or seemed to have the upper hand, it must have been because she was sleeping with someone. And I mm. think Eleanor comes off quite badly in the hands of medieval chroniclers, even though if you'd met her, you'd probably think this is not a woman who needs to sleep her way to the top. She had all the tools at her disposal and the brain to be able to figure out her way to the top without any of these guys even knowing what had hit them. And that brings us really to Henry, who I know is a favorite of yours um, in, in medieval kings, because he was every bit the king that England needed at the time. You know, they'd come out of the Civil War. Henry II was this just unbelievably energetic human being. He could ride for days at a time on horseback. And of course, being here at one point and there at another, made you just terrifying to people because they thought, how did he get here so quickly? They never knew where he'd pitch up. He had complete control of his kingdom. He was remorseless. He was constantly on the move, highly energetic, a force of nature. He was called the Alexander of, of the West at times because of the vast lands that he'd owned or inherited or he took it by a siege. So it's all the way from Scotland and the Highlands from Scotland all the way to the Pyrenees. But when he came, I think the realm just breathed a sigh of relief. Henry I, who was his grandfather, he had male heirs, but the, the, the male heir died in a shipwreck. And so the, the only real heir was Matilda, and she was fasty in herself. And she hung around quite a bit much later uh, than Henry did, Henry I. Matilda was told by her father that she'd be the successor to his throne, but that never transpired. Stephen, who was a cousin of hers, um, got the throne. And uh, there was civil war because uh, a lot of people, a lot of the nobles didn't want him as, as king, etc., for whatever reasons. So it was a really difficult time for the realm. And, and when Henry came along, it just gave it a, a, the, the solidity. He cleaned things up very quickly. He was very, very astute in terms of law and administration, which we don't often talk about. We often talk about the warrior side. Uh, there's lots of things that he did at that time that, that are still relevant today. Yeah, and he was a he was an impressive guy. I mean, he, he was already, I think, nine years younger than Eleanor when he married her. And they almost had to rush to do it because, again, there were all these men after her. And her whole life would be spent either running towards men, running away from men, or trying to manage men. And, and <laughs> this was, this was going to be accompanied by the fact that there were all these very, very strong male influences, but also people like Matilda, who, who was an example of, you know, a, a woman who tried to hold her own at a time where those were very difficult things to do. She and he got along really well in the beginning. They produced, uh, well, how many kids were there? One, two, three, four, five, eight, six, seven, eight, nine, nine kids. Nine which is absolutely amazing. She was a mother of nine children. Now, if you think about it, these days we rightly are impressed by someone who can raise three or four kids. Mm. This woman had nine. Uh, some of them were boys and they fought with each other all the time. And she would sometimes take their sides, even against their father. But for a few years there, they had a happy marriage. And it seems they were genuinely in love. 
And while she probably influenced him in some ways, he also influenced her in some ways. But constantly keeping the borders of this enormous realm in, in play were, you know, these were their, their preoccupations. This was a full-time job for Henry and for Eleanor. They said he spent 14 years of his reign in England, um, which is fair enough because he owned half of France together with Eleanor. But that's only half of his reign. So he's just over 30 years, I think, was his reign. So he, um, he needed to spend time in his French territories as well as in England. And I think he just had the right amount of energy. And as you mentioned earlier, constantly on the move. He, he, did, he did everything on the move, and it worked. They, they eventually called the empire that he ruled over, the Angevin Empire. Anjou was where his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, was from, and they called it the Angevin Empire. Um, he you know, partially controlled Scotland, the Duchy of Brittany, Ireland, much of territorial France, but he was only really accepted in the south of France because of Eleanor. She had to go out there and convince all of these vassals of hers that Henry was their boss as well, because without her, he wouldn't have had control over all of that. But there was constantly this tension between France and England. And the French crown, you know, went from being very influential and powerful to being completely worthless at various stages through this up and down. And the, the king who eventually turned it around for France was Philippe Augustus, is who we call him. He took over after Eleanor's ex-husband, Louis VII, died. Um, so it, it's hard to keep track of these things. But essentially, what ended up happening was that Henry II and Eleanor's children eventually started to fight with each other and bicker mostly the boys. Um, the eldest of them who survived was Henry the Young King, who was this, again, perfect medieval king in some ways. You could joust, could fight, could lead a, an army to battle. But he was also a very vain, very proud, very spoilt little guy. Um, and ultimately also started arguing with his father to the point where Henry II, and he had so many arguments, he, um, he was traveling through southern France at court dysentery and realized he was going to die. And the first thing he wanted to do after that was make up with his dad because they'd been fighting for most of their adult lives. I think the big thing that the sons had was that the dad was outwardly compliant, inwardly defiant. He had total control. He didn't want to release any control. And I think yeah. it was more them and then their mom standing by them rather than Eleanor actually acting against Henry II. I think you're right to mostly absolve Eleanor of the blame, although Henry gave her most of the blame when he put her in prison in 1173, and he kept her mm. in there for 15 years. And 15 years is not a short space of time. No. Um, this woman wasn't kept in like a dungeon. She had her own household. Uh, you know, she had a good living. She got lots of exercise. was ride to, allowed to ride her horse around and, and hunt and do all the things that she'd done before. But she was estranged. She would, she would be brought out for important family occasions and for Christmas and that sort of thing. And when Henry needed her to win over his barons in the South. But there was also talk about her having the court of love. And I think that was just a little bit before mm. she was locked up. But, but she was estranged by then, let's say, from Henry. And so she stayed in Poitiers and established together with her daughter a court where people could come and she would hear people's issues, etc. but a place of, of poetry, of love, of philosophy, and it became actually quite famous. Do you think that Eleanor and Henry had a lifelong kind of love for each other? Because Henry definitely had other women and she'd obviously had other men both before him and we're not sure after. 
Um, but they, they seem to have been like star-crossed lovers. You know, in some ways, they were meant, they were fated to be together, even though they were both such powerful alpha human beings. Uh, there's no doubt. Uh, you know, I don't think that Henry could find anybody in his lifetime that could match Eleanor. And I think that Eleanor was satisfied, let's say, with with Henry II. I mean, he was energetic. He had massive angers at times, but he never held grudges. He was stubborn, but but intelligent. I think that they, they there wasn't anybody on the planet that could satisfy any one of them but themselves. Sure. So she did. You mentioned she already used to take the sides of some of her children. Her favorite was undoubtedly Richard. And Richard would end up taking over after Henry II died as King of England. And then obviously she'd already ins- installed him as, as Duke of Aquitaine as well. So when he came along, it made sense for her to look after things for him. She'd been in prison in England for 15 years, which is more time than Henry II spent in England. So she knew the place and she kind of took over as regent because all Richard wanted to do was go to the Crusades. And it just shows you the relationship they had with their mom. There was so much talk that she was a bad mom, just nipping back to the two daughters from Louis the Seventh. Mm-hmm. Oh, but she didn't have a relationship. Well, she was not allowed to have a relationship. That's the way it worked in those days. That was not her property. Those two daughters were taken into the French court. So that wasn't any doing of hers. And then all of the sons on Henry, young Henry's deathbed, he, he just wanted his dad to release Eleanor from prison. He wants to release his mom from prison. Richard used her to run his role while he was fighting the Crusades. And she was very instrumental during John's reign. You know, we talked about William Marshall in a previous episode of Blind History. He was alive and around at the same time. And it just shows you that no man is an island, right? You have Henry II, Richard I, John, and all three of these kings rely not only on William Marshall in a big way, but all three of them also rely very heavily on Eleanor of Aquitaine. Correct. And she's, she's this not-so-quiet influence in the background, you know, this powerful woman who has her own territories. She has her own reason to stand on her own two feet and not particularly care what these men are all up to. But she helps her sons in various ways in order to establish themselves as kings. And without her, Richard could never have run England from mm. afar. Her progeny were the three kings of England. Um, right. Just her media progeny, so it's, which, which was incredible and unusual at the time. But I think a big part of Henry was at least a little bit of balance in Henry's life because Henry was um, impetuous. And, mm. and I think that she did help. And, and you said earlier, rightly so, that I don't think Henry could have got to the heights that he did if it wasn't for her, besides the fact that Aquitaine was, was put under his realm. There was just so much more. And even the Thomas Beckett saga, which I think is a very, very important thing that, that tarnished Henry II's reign. Thomas Beckett was appointed by Henry as his chancellor. They were very, very close. Effectively, it was like, if we think of Queen Elizabeth now, it's her prime minister. But Henry made a mistake, I mean, in hindsight, in that he appointed him the Archbishop of Canterbury and expected Thomas Beckett to toe the line, like he'd done throughout his, his tenure as the chancellor. But what happened was Thomas Beckett flipped 100%, uh, did a 360 degree turn. There's discussions, reasons why it was maybe he felt like he never belonged as an archbishop, as, as a man of the cloth, and he had to keep proving himself. 
So he became extremely dogmatic and vociferous in his protection of of the cloth and everything to do with the Pope yeah. and religion. Yeah, I think you, you've just illustrated such a good point, and maybe your theory is the right one, that he was trying to prove himself. But it's also that you have two bosses. You know, you, you have two gods that you report to as mm, this correct. lowly uh, archbishop, because you, you've got a king in England and you've got the Pope in Rome. And there might have also been a little bit of pride. There might have also been advancement. You know, suddenly you're responsible to the, the head of the whole Catholic Church in Europe, and this is the way to your afterlife. And on the other hand, you've got Henry, who made the terrible mistake of one drunken knight saying, will someone rid me of this turbulent priest? Mm -hmm. and two of his knights who were in attendance heard this and thought, ha, we'll do that for you. We're drunk enough. We're, uh, we're loyal enough. They got on their horses, rode off to Canterbury and slaughtered poor Thomas of Becket at the altar of Canterbury Cathedral. I mean, while he was praying, while he was praying, there's still a marker there. Yeah. To you know, he's a saint. He's he's regarded as as the martyr, the first mm -hmm. proper martyr of of post ten sixty six England. And poor Henry never really got over this because he didn't hate Thomas. He didn't didn't want to certainly didn't want to murder him. Um, it was a fit of drunken rage. He he wasn't sure what you know role he'd played in it. And it it really it seems to have had a terrible psychological influence and impact on him. After that, he became very. Uh, pious and he, he, he made all sorts of offerings and gave lots of lands back to the church and did all kinds of things that he might not have done if not for guilt. Um, and all of this affected his reign too, because now he has no one he can rely on to run England. His wife is turning on him with his sons. His sons are all turning on each other and on him. He must have felt very lonely. Historians are very harsh on him for that part of his reign and what happened. Uh, you know, I think we'll never know. You know, if he oh. behind closed doors said we need to take him out, um, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people believe that he didn't. But it was a big turning point. I think the big failures in his reign was the Archbishop of Canterbury's murder and also the fact that his sons just didn't have a lot of love for their father. No, and I think, you know, some of them came around and, and because he was such a powerful man, they fought and vied for his attention and affection a lot of the time. And Maybe they didn't get enough of that. Maybe he was a terrible father. You could probably say Eleanor was a very good mother and she stood by her sons, but she was also the only person who could ever stand up to Henry. He was so powerful. Mm. And, and ultimately they are buried next to each other in Fontevraud Abbey, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the effigies are still there despite, you know, all those churches in France being looted during the revolution. Uh, and these two effigies lie next to each other as if they still, are in perfect harmony. Of course, we know that during life there was no harmony. Well, not for a very long time. Um, so it's quite lovely to see these two unbelievably, what would you even call them? Just you, you said earlier with Henry, a force of nature. I think they both were. And mm. in all of their children, a little bit of that, you know, power in that bloodline began with both of these two. And it may, it may have been the, the source of so much of England's glory and so much of England's woes and the romantic in me hopes that they you know that they did love each other i saw um the line yeah. in the winter that movie you could see clearly in that that they still loved each other you know that they 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 would scream and shout and rant and rave but they did love each other and they are like you correctly have said they're lying together actually i think richard was also the effigy was also there the That's three right. of them 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's very special that they're there together. Yeah, of course, they may have produced a line of incredible kings, including, you know, the great Edward I and Edward III, possibly the greatest medieval kings. Henry II is among those number. But they also produced the worst, John, Richard II, Edward II, you know, so... This is the beginning of so many things that made mm. Britain and, and before that England uh, the amazing country that it is and gave it this amazing history. So an, an incredible place to start. And the, the first real Plantagenet king being Henry II, it was the beginning of a dynasty that would last for hundreds of years. There is people trying to find out the living Plantagenets, you know, yeah. um, because it was such an incredibly powerful lineage. And it, the name comes from a, a, a broom plant, and he used to wear a little twig of this broom plant in his hat, and the bloom is called the Plantagenista. So that's where it comes from, Plantagenista, um, Plantagenet. He was the first to use the surname, and the device, of course, of the three lions, um, which is still on the England cricket team's shirt. It's mm. the, the Queen's coat of arms, and it became the coat of arms of the country of England, those three lions, gold lions on the red background. That's Plantagenet. So that's where these two started their amazing dynasty. And if you look at the, the size of his realm, that for me is, oh, yeah. is something that's just incredible. And it's also just worth saying again, because of Eleanor and her amazing influence on all of this, that even right at the end of her life, she was still trying to arrange dynastic marriages. And she went and fetched her granddaughter from Castile to bring her in to marry the new Dauphin of France. And this this woman just right up to her 82nd year was still going strong 82 years old in 1190 or whatever it was it's just insane phenomenal that's them eleanor and henry thanks for listening to this episode of blind history every episode is available on the cliff central app cliffcentral.com or wherever you get your podcasts in the next episode he at one point was the richest man in the world. At one point, he was asked to help the U.S. Air Force with plans for planes. He also slept with some of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. The guy just seems to have lived 10 lives in one.